Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. I hope everyone's having a wonderful day, a wonderful evening. We thank you for being here uh, with us. It's been quite a while since we've uh, dove into the book of Genesis, uh, which is what we are doing tonight. We're picking back up. Uh, It was actually um, almost two full months ago, the last week of July was when we were in Genesis, and at that point we were at Genesis 37, so naturally tonight we're going to move into Genesis 38. So, we did have an amazing, huh? Oh, it's 38, Don't, that was last time. He's, he's, he's changing it right now, so blink a few times and it will be different. <clears throat> but we did have an amazing summer series um, I'm more than a little sad that we didn't actually get to have a meal tonight. I really like that part of it. But, you know, we had a great series. Last week was a great week of prayer. There were times of prayer each night that was, were just sweet and, and wonderful, and the Holy Spirit was definitely present with us. And so, again, we're jumping back into Genesis. We have 12 chapters left, so... Uh, That'll probably take us another six months or so, I would guess, but no, we'll see. Now, we've been talking about God's plan of redemption, and all through Genesis, we have been really kind of focusing in on that, and that's really the, the primary theme of Genesis is this plan of redemption. How do we get out of the mess that we put ourselves in with the fall? And we can't do it on our own, so God has to incorporate this massive plan, and that's what uh, has been unfolding. We've made it through the lives of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, we remember that Isaac was the son of promise. We worked our way through portions of the life of Jacob. We have the birth of his 12 sons, and we've encountered some of the, the things that have gone on in their lives. We've seen consistent themes as we've examined the lives of these patriarchs. Primarily, they were a bunch of sinners, but while they were sinners, God's grace was sufficient to move his plan forward. God was faithful in spite of their faithlessness. When we looked at chapter 37, I actually said uh, each generation took the bad example of their father and fell further into depravity. Each of these men seemed to forget God's promises and tried to take matters into their own hands. Each of these men dealt with unbearable circumstances that they brought upon themselves, and each time God was faithful and he redeemed each of these men. Although they were redeemed, the consequences of their choices stayed with them. For example, Abraham was permanently separated from his son Ishmael. Isaac passed his inheritance on to the wrong son, and Jacob had 12 sons from four different women, and none of them seemed to like each other. 
Remember with me, if you do, back to chapter 37. This chapter served as a transition into the final section of the book of Genesis. This section is the life of Jacob, but we really start to see his life played out primarily through the actions of Joseph and his relationship with his father and with his brothers. In essence, Jacob is going to be taking a back seat in his own story to the actions of his second youngest son. We know that this is technically his story, and his again being Jacob, with the way that chapter 37 opened. Chapter 37, verse 1 and 2 said, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. So we know that ultimately it's going to be focused on Jacob, but again, we're talking about his sons, and most of this will be focused on Joseph. Here tonight we're going to be talking about uh, Judah. But we're also given the setting there in those first two verses, where much of this stage of Jacob's life is going to take place. So remember that after Isaac died, Jacob and Esau went their separate ways. They seemed to reconcile, but after Isaac's death, Jacob went to Canaan. When we look at the Bible as a whole, we see that there are certain metaphors that are played out as we are looking at real historical events. For example, we know that a reference to Egypt is typically also a reference to sin. So there's a a spiritual metaphor there. Egypt is symbolic or it's a model of sin. And so much in the same way, when we're talking about Canaan, Canaan is a symbol or a model for the world or worldly living. So in the beginning of chapter 7 or 37, we saw that Jacob had moved his family to the land where his father was a stranger. He had moved his family into the world, in an essence. In chapter 38, we'll see that Judah takes it one step further. But in chapter 37, we did see just how dysfunctional the 12 sons of Jacob were. Most of them despised their brother Joseph, and they saw an opportunity to get rid of him. They ended up agreeing on Judah's plan to profit from selling Joseph into slavery, and then they fake his death for their father. So Jacob mourns the loss of his favorite son, and he seems to indicate in verse 35 of chapter 37 that his mourning would follow him unto death. And it says in 35, and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. At the end of chapter 37, we see that Jacob is still reaping what he had sown. Jacob was a liar, and he was being deceived by the lies of his sons. He had gone into mourning, believing that one of his sons had been killed. And this was, excuse me, this was a direct result of the example that he provided. Chapter 37 concludes with Joseph in captivity, Jacob in mourning, and his other 11 sons were full on in deception. Once again, God's plan of redemption, his line of promise, seemed to be in jeopardy because of the sins of the people that he was gracious toward. But it's because of God's grace that we see the the events of chapter 38 unfold. So if you look with me in chapter 38, verse 1, says, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. 
And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. So this is a chapter that most people don't really like to camp in. It's not going to be a very pleasant chapter. Uh, that We are going to see pretty deplorable actions that take place in this chapter. So the attitude of trying to kind of get in and get out is understandable. Even if you go through commentaries, this is a very short chapter that has very little to commentate on. And uh, I'm a glutton of, or for punishment, and so I've already asked Kevin if I could teach a second week in this chapter next week, because why, would, why, why get out of it? There's lots of stuff to talk about. No, so we'll see. We'll see where we go. But it is, on the surface, a deplorable chapter. The lessons that we can learn or apply to our own lives are fairly straightforward in this chapter, and they're definitely focused on what we should not do rather than behaviors that we should model. So from that viewpoint, this chapter is and can be somewhat discouraging, and some would say it's not very redemptive or hope-filled. But it's my intention, hopefully by the end of tonight and the end of this chapter, that we will see hope because God is sufficient, and he's gonna make himself known here. So in these first five verses, the verses we just read, we see a, a string of bad choices from Judah. He leaves his brothers. This also implies that he's leaving his father and the rest of his household. Judah knows that the Lord has blessed his father and their line. He knows that there is something special that God is doing through them. His great-grandpa was told that they would be a great nation. His grandfather was the son of promise. His father was given the birthright that should have gone to his uncle Esau. God's protection and blessing was on the house of Jacob and Judah was walking away from all of that. We aren't told why he leaves, but it is clear that his move was away from God and toward the world. He left his father's house and he went to Canaan. He goes and finds a friend. <clears throat> then he finds a wife, and then he ends up living in the midst of the Canaanites. I think we can say that we see this attitude right now in the younger generation, especially in the United States. And I know that we could argue that people naturally rebel in their late teens or early adult years, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Statistically, if we look at adults between the ages of 18 and 30, they are leaving the church at a much higher rate than previous generations. They are seeking worldly pleasure, not because of some great hurt, but in many instances, it's simply out of complacency, not wanting to put in the work, looking for an easy way to gain pleasure or satisfaction. And I think that's what we're seeing here with um, Judah. So remember, Jacob was living in the land of Canaan. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 37. So the emphasis with Judah is not necessarily the proximity to the Canaanites, but rather it was that he was embracing the Canaanites and their customs. And that's what we need to be aware of. It's not necessarily the proximity we are to the world it's the willingness to embrace what the world is spewing. So Judah took a Canaanite wife. He took a worldly wife. 
And this was something that had been prevented in earlier generations. Back in Genesis 24, as Abraham was wanting to find a wife for his son Isaac, he forbade his servant from finding a Canaanite woman. In Genesis 28, it was again emphasized that Abraham's line should not intermingle with the Canaanites. And so up until this point, there had been a clear line that had been established. But here, Judah is introducing Canaanite blood into the line of promise. But it's the greater symbolism that we really need to be aware of here. Judah has left the protections and the blessings of God. He has sought the counsel of the world. He has embraced the customs of the world. And he has intermingled those customs with the customs and promises of God. See, Judah is doing what we never should. As believers in Christ, as God's children, we shouldn't seek counsel from the world. We shouldn't intermingle or be unequally yoked. We shouldn't look at the world as our friends that have our best interests at heart. Remember, the Bible makes it very clear. There are the people of God and there are the people of the world. The people of God are our brothers and sisters. The people of the world are our enemies. And it's not until they become a brother or sister in Christ that they become our friend and our family. So we need to be very clear and careful with that and understand that. The, what Judah's doing and what we should not do is we don't run from God's protection, love, and promises into the arms and counsel of the world and expect anything good to come out of that. If you run from God to the world, it's only going to be bad that follows you. There's been times in my life when I knew the truth. I knew what I should do and I knew if I went to a Christian friend or a Christian mentor, they would lead me the right way. But the problem was that I didn't want to do what was right. I didn't want to do what I should do. And so instead, I went to worldly sources. I went to so-called friends that would tell me to look out for myself. They would tell me to seek pleasure above all else. And when I followed that advice, when I followed that path, when I made those choices, good grief, did life get messy. And that's where Judah is at right now. So Judah's wife has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now one of the questions that's naturally raised as we read through this chapter is the placement of chapter 38. So chapter 37 introduces Joseph, and then chapter 39 is going to pick up in the life of Joseph with him being in captivity in Egypt, and then much of the remaining chapters are going to be dealing with Joseph almost as the primary character. But one of the thoughts of, of the placement of this chapter here is that Judah's choices in chapter 38 show a stark contrast between the man living in the world, here as Judah, living for himself and versus the man in chapter 39 and, and moving forward, um, that man of God who Joseph would become. So there's going to be a contrast and we'll talk more about that as we move into later chapters. We'll see some specific examples of that contrast. But that's a, a fairly straightforward explanation as to why this story that we're getting into is right in between chapters 37 and 39. And also remember, if you, 
excuse me, if you remember, back in 37, because we are talking about the life of Jacob through his sons, it's not just Joseph. And so this is another element of one of his sons that we're seeing his kind of generation and the mistakes and the things that they do and, and how Jacob's life is being carried out through all of this. And in this particular chapter, Jacob is completely missing. He's not a part of it because his son had moved away from him. So Judah is living in the world. He's fully embraced the way of the world and he's living for himself. While we don't have all of the details, we are able to determine that more than 20 years will pass before Judah is reconciled to his brother Joseph and reconciled to his other brothers and his father. So that's 20 years of worldly living, dealing with the consequences of his sin, hardening his heart toward God, but ultimately we will see that God restores Judah. But we're kind of getting, our, getting ahead of ourselves if we start talking about that because we haven't even gotten into the nasty yet. So again, here Judah has three sons. Verse six, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also." So Ur's only reference in history, his only you know, spoken of here in the Bible, was that he was wicked enough that God intervened and took his life. And this always gives me pause. I always wonder, based on the lives of everybody else that was in the Bible, and some that we've already encountered, those people weren't struck down by the Lord they were given grace to live out their lives. So what in the world did Ur do here that was so much worse than all of those other guys that the Lord said, nope, I'm done with you, and took him out? I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. We just have to imagine it was probably pretty bad. So Judah is trying to find a wife for his firstborn. Some speculate that he went back to his father's house, and Tamar was not a Canaanite, but there's no indication of that in the text. It doesn't really actually reveal anything like that. On the contrary, it implies that Tamar herself would have been a Canaanite. Judah took a Canaanite for his own wife. He is dwelling with and embracing the Canaanite way of life. So this, again, con the context of his actions lend themselves to him taking a Canaanite wife for his son. Ur is wicked, so he's killed by God. Tamar is now a widow, with no children. And in ancient Middle East cultures, this was about the worst possible position that a woman could be in. She has no offspring to carry on her husband's name. She has no cl claim to land or inheritance. And because she was presumably no longer a virgin, she would no longer be desirable as a wife. So Tamar was not left with a lot of options. However, culturally, there was a practice that would get around all of that and this is what Judah is instructing his next son to do. Onan was Tamar's brother-in-law, and he was not yet married, so he would take Tamar as his wife, and their first child would be considered the son of Er, her deceased husband. No one 
or not only would this provide safety and honor for Tamar, but it would provide an heir for Ur, say that really fast, heir for Ur, that would keep his line intact and it would keep his inheritance also intact. Now don't misunderstand the purpose of this. The land inheritance and um, being passed, that was far more important than what actually happened to Tamar. Keeping the the land and the inheritance in the family um, and in the father's line was extremely important. And that's just the reality of the culture. Tamar, in, in every single way, she was going to be considered a secondary or afterthought. So this custom is called simply brother-in-law marriage or the husband's brother marries the widow. Uh, today we've given it a fancy Latin name, that's the leveret marriage, but it literally means husband's brother or brother-in-law marriage. And in Deuteronomy 25, this cultural practice that, that Judah and Tamar are trying to um, practice, it actually becomes part of the Mosaic law, uh, again in Deuteronomy 25. But Onan didn't want to fulfill this role. He didn't want to be the brother-in-law that stepped in and provided an heir for his dead brother. Now, he married Tamar. He would engage in sex with her. But as other translations say, he would spill his semen on the ground to prevent her from getting pregnant. Instead of taking his responsibility seriously, he was reaping the selfish benefits of this arrangement. So this would be challenging. With Ur dead, Onan was set to get not only his part of the inheritance, which would have been the second portion, but he also would have been given the first portion, which is a larger portion. So he would have been getting first and second portions of Judah's inheritance. So there was lots of selfish incentive for Onan to keep doing what he was doing. As soon as he made or produced an heir for his dead brother, he lost out on that large portion of his inheritance. He wouldn't have received it. It would have gone to that child. And so there was a lot of reasons why he did what he did. He made it clear that he was willing to be selfish and to reap the benefits without any of the responsibility. So God killed him. And notice at this point that we as readers, we know that God is behind those two deaths. Moses makes it clear to us as he's writing that God killed those two brothers. But Judah's not aware of that. And we can see that through the course of his next actions. So Judah, he knows that he has given his two oldest sons to Tamar, and they've both ended up dead. So he's starting to get a little suspicious. He's like, what is this chick doing? Right? So in verse 11, it says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So at this point, Judah is done giving his sons to Tamar. The text tells us that his third son Shelah is not old enough to get married, but it also seems like he has no intention of letting Tamar marry him when he is old enough. So he's pretty much blaming Tamar for the deaths of his two sons, and he sends her away back to her own father's house. He's sending her back to shame. So Tamar understands the undertones of what Judah is doing and saying. So he may say he's going to give her the third son when he's old enough, 
But she's leaving understanding he has no intention of doing that. So in verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Now he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me, that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So Tamar waited at her father's house. She was waiting for Shelah, but when he reached adulthood, she was not taken back to Judah's house to become his wife. So somewhere during this waiting period, Judah's wife died, and he went into a period of mourning. Her father's house was the last place that Tamar should have been. She was under the protection and ultimately the command of Judah. She could never marry again without him giving her a groom and without her receiving permission from him. She understood what was going on and she was becoming desperate. So she caught wind that Judah was coming out of his mourning period and that he was going to shear his sheep. Now, without getting into all those details, this meant that there was going to be a large celebration complete with the debauchery that typically went along with that sort of long, large celebration. So Tamar dresses up as a temple prostitute, and I will just say that this is technically the okay type of prostitute in the culture. You couldn't just be a random run-of-the-mill prostitute, that wasn't good, but if you were a temple prostitute, then the guys could come and worship the pagan gods by sleeping with you, and that was, like I said, an act of worship. And so she was dressed in this sort of way, and it would bring with it a, a, a level of, you know, it was still okay. Adultery was wrong, common prostitution was wrong, but temple prostitution was okay. And that's all we can say about that. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Tamar dresses up as a temple prostitute and she begins to unfold this plan. Now, there are some biological details that would have had to that Tamar would have had to be fully aware of or she could have just potentially been that desperate. Because her intention was to get pregnant. And we know that that can only happen at certain times. So she had to be aware of what was going on with herself and knowing that all of these things were aligning and that if she goes and she presents herself to Judah, the chance of her getting pregnant was hopefully pretty high. Like I said, she could have just been 
completely desperate and unaware, but I seem to think that she probably would have had a bit more understanding of what was actually going on. So she needed a son from the house of Judah. And if Judah wasn't willing to give her his son, Shelah, then she was prepared for Judah to give her a child. And that's what happens. They negotiate a price, you know, a young goat, the prices that they come up with, man. So Tamar gets some collateral because he didn't show up there with a young goat. He wasn't just walking around with a goat. So he says, okay, I'm going to give you a young goat, which would have been great. It would have provided food. It would have provided um, sustenance. It would have been a, a good transaction in the, as good of this transaction could be. But he doesn't have the goat there with him. And so Tamar wants some collateral because she doesn't want to just agree and then sleep with them and then get nothing out of it. So <clears throat> they figure out this collateral. She, she's going to ensure that she'll get paid later and then they engage in intercourse. Afterwards, Tamar sneaks out. She goes back to her dad's house. She puts on her widow's clothes and she hides those collateral items. And sometime later, she does find out that she is actually pregnant. So it would seem that her plan was working. So the next point of application for us comes from what Judah gave up. The collateral items were his signet, a cord, and his staff. The signet would have been attached to the cord and would have been wrapped around his neck. <clears throat> this would have likely been something that Judah uh, used as a symbol of his identity. The signet was a mark or a seal. If he was to conduct business or make a deal, his signet would be pressed in hot wax and then applied to the contract. So in essence was his marker, his symbol, his identity. The rod was a symbol of power. It would have been something more than just a walking stick. So in essence, we see Judah giving up his identity and his power for a temporary pleasure. And spiritually, as I said, this is applicable to us. We should never give up our identity in Christ for temporal, brief gratification. Judah assumed that he would get these items back. He believed he was engaging in a temporary activity and that there would be little to no consequences for his actions. And many times this is how we approach sin. A temporary act with little or no consequences. But each time we sin, we are choosing to give up a little bit of our identity in Christ. We are choosing to give up a little of the power that the blood of Christ has given to us. See, every time we sin as believers, we are going back to identifying with our sin rather than with our Savior. What I'm saying isn't reflective of salvation. This is what we've been looking at as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a group of believers that were getting wrapped up in false teachings and doctrines that were laced with pagan elements. Paul was addressing their sanctification, and in later letters he focuses on our inheritance as believers. So choosing to compromise our identity in Christ is failing to put away the old man. It's the struggle that Paul talked about 
even in his own life. In Romans 7, 21 through 25, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. See, it's not until our glorification that we will truly be free from our sin nature, but we do have the ability to choose step by step, day by day, cling on to the identity of Christ, cling on to the blood of Christ, and stay away from the old man. Stay away from the life of sin and the temptation. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So this is where we see Judah start to realize that he may have given up too much for temporary satisfaction. He sent his friend to, to square up the bill, but Hira was unable to find the, this temple prostitute. Not only could he not find her, but the men of the area, the men of the, um, the region where they did the sheep shearing, said there were no, no prostitutes here. So Judas probably seeing that there was something else going on. He's not really sure, but the more he digs, the more embarrassing it could potentially become for himself. And so he tells his friend to drop it, stop looking for her. We tried, let her keep those items. Not understanding, again, that he'd given up his identity and his power, and it's going to come back to bite him. <clears throat> so a few months later, it would seem that the whole incident was forgotten. And then, in a completely unrelated bit of gossip, and I'm saying that in a very sarcastic way, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. So verse 24 says, and it came to pass about three months after that, that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now he uses that term righteous very loosely there because neither of them are acting very righteously. But in contrast, she is more righteous than he. So Judah was immediately angry and he was willing to punish Tamar with death, which was a, a satisfactory punishment, an acceptable punishment for adultery. And in 
this instance, that is what she would be accused of. If she was pregnant, she technically would have been betrothed to the third son. Um, And so as long as she stayed in that state at her father's house and they weren't officially married, she could have just kind of been there indefinitely. But as soon as she got pregnant, now she's being accused of committing adultery. And now this is when Judah wants to actually pay attention to the oath that they have. He didn't care about the oath when she was there and out of sight and not really dealing with anything. So now he's angry. Now he wants to put her to death. So Tamar getting pregnant as a widow under his covering would have cast shame on the house of Judah. So he was justifiably upset, but he had no clue what was really going on. So Tamar was brought before him. Judah is ready to execute that judgment. But then Tamar reveals his personal items, his identity. There was no way out of this for Judah. He knew in that moment that Tamar was pushed to her actions because of his unfaithfulness. So Judah realized that he was the one that was acting without honor. So what's implied here is that Tamar would have gone back to live in Judah's household with her two sons, because she is going to be pregnant with twins, we'll find out in a minute, but that she and Judah did not enter into a relationship. So Ur was given an heir, Tamar was given life, and Judah was given a big old slice of humble pie. So verse 27, now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So in a final twist, Tamar has twins and the younger child is delivered first and is named Perez. And this becomes yet another example of the older submitting to the younger. And it's even a foreshadow of what was about to happen in Judah's own life with his little brother, Joseph. So here's a few things to notice about Tamar. As we said at the beginning, she was a Canaanite. Throughout this entire event, there's never an indication that she knows the Lord or that she trusts God. So unlike Hagar and the other women before her, there is no indication of faith here with Tamar. She sought justice and she sought to be redeemed based off of the cultural norms. And the Lord still heard her. And that last point is the most significant point because it's this last point that truly demonstrates the grace of God. Tamar acted in a sinful manner. She deceived She manipulated, and in a way she was even bribing Judah. She had good intentions, but really bad methods. But the Lord still heard her. If we focus on the people of this event, if we focus on the people of Genesis 38, it is a deplorable chapter. 
we see a man choosing to walk out of the protection and promises of God. We find him seeking comfort in the world. We see a pagan woman become his wife. We see wicked sons killed by God and another pagan woman taking matters into her own hands in the name of so-called justice. Sin is on full display in Genesis 38. But here's the interesting thing. If we focus on God and his actions through Genesis 38, this no longer becomes a deplorable chapter. Instead, we see a chapter full of God's amazing grace. God's grace is a matter of his character. It is who he is. Man's wicked, sinful actions cannot thwart the grace of God. Our sinful actions cannot knock God's plan of redemption off track. As I've shared in my testimony and other times before, when I moved to Las Vegas, my intention was to move into a life of debauchery. See, after I had been doing things right, I wasn't really interested in doing them right anymore because I felt like right never got me the right place. I had no idea that when I moved to Las Vegas and my intentions were intentions of ill intent, that God actually had a wife, a ministry, and four children waiting there for me. See, I set myself up in all kinds of circumstances, potential STDs, potentially getting arrested, injuries, possibly even death, making just stupid decisions, stupid choices, yet God's grace spared me from all of that. He didn't just bail me out. He kept me from all of it. He blessed me more than I could ever imagine. See, I am a perfect example of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 126 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that would be me, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, again, that would be me, to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Judah, Tamar, the dead sons, the living sons, the Adulamite. It didn't matter who the character was in chapter 38. They were all deplorable. They were all sin-filled people. Many of them, most of them, had no intention of pursuing God. Yet he used them to carry out his redemptive plan. To keep his line of promise intact. We know that Judah at a time will kind of repent. I say kind of because there's, we're not going to, I don't want to spoil everything. We're going to get there. But in Genesis 49, at the end of his father Jacob's life, he gathers with all of his brothers and they get there and Jacob begins to prophesy over all of them. And here's what he says to Judah. 
This is chapter, Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah. Now remember everything we just talked about with Judah, right? Deplorable actions, living in the world, nonsense with his sons, nonsense with Tamar. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This man that physically and symbolically walked away from God, this man who was the fourth son of his father Jacob, this man that sold his own brother into slavery because he was told that he was going to bow before him, this man, Judah, is who God chose to use to establish the line of kings. But he didn't do it through Judah's oldest son, He didn't do it through any of Judah's chosen sons, those first three. He did it through the desperation of Tamar. So she has forever been recorded in the genealogy of the Davidic line. And as such, she has been recorded also in the genealogy of the Messiah himself. See, God's plans are not contingent on me or you. He's going to use who he chooses to use. He has gifted and called each of us as his children to serve a purpose. But if we hesitate, if we delay, or if we refuse, his plan will still move forward. God is in the business of using broken sinners to accomplish his work. And it's through his grace that we receive this blessing. It's through his love that he desires to have a relationship with us. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that he has made all of that possible. So when we look at Genesis chapter 38, we can view it as a deplorable chapter or we can understand how we should truly see it as an amazing act of God's grace on a lot of broken people. And it's the same grace that he passes toward to us and offers to us. And the sooner we realize that life is not about us, the sooner that we can then be in right relationship with the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, our great redeemer. We're gonna take communion. I'm gonna ask Josh to to come up. Um, And as we do, the elements will be on both sides. You'll come up and get them on your own as we typically do on Wednesday nights. But I really want, and I'm, I'm going to encourage you, before you come and grab these elements, just bask in the realization of the grace that God has given you throughout your life up until this point. We all can look at our lives and see his mighty work. The things that he's kept us from, the ways that he's directed our path, the way he's guided us, the way he's blessed us. These are all manifestations 
of his grace. We didn't earn it. We definitely don't deserve it. But it's because he loves us. So as we take communion and we honor what he did on the cross through his son, let's reflect personally on what he's done in each of our individual lives. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.